Scratch Talking Heads frontman David Byrne live at Boston's Museum of Science on May 8th. David will be appearing to talk about what for centuries scientists and philosophers have called the eel question. Much of these mysterious creatures' life cycle remains a mystery even in our advanced scientific age. David will be joined by perhaps our greatest cultural authority on the eel question, Patrick Svensson, author of the acclaimed Book of Eels. Limited tickets remain, so please get yours at singforscience.org events. There's anechoic and reverberation chambers that are used for test and measurement. But an anechoic space is a space that has no reflections in it. It absorbs all reflected energy. The experience of being in an anechoic chamber is typically unpleasant. There is no sound in there at all in one that's built properly. You get in there and first thing you start noticing is you start hearing this like high-pitched whining sound. That's your neurology. It's your nervous system. Then you start hearing this low-frequency sort of like that. And it's the blood rushing across your eardrum. So then they turn the lights out and you've got nothing coming back. And you say, hello. And there's nothing. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Mac DeMarco and acoustic engineer Russ Berger to the show. The title of this week's episode is Chamber of Reflection, Understanding Music with the Science of Sound. Hello, Mac and Russ. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Mac, we're here to talk about Chamber of Reflection, the song, and also Chamber of Reflection, the echo chamber that you built in your basement for recording. Could you give us some background on the song before we get into talking about the space underneath your house? Sure. Uh, Chamber of Reflection is off of uh, an album of mine that came out in 2014 called Salad Days. Uh, yeah, I recorded that record in New York and like right on Myrtle and Broadway, a little studio in this warehouse that we were living at. We're like kind of, kind of warehouse style thing. It was called the meat wall. It's no longer there. That is an evocative. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, uh, I made it back then. The title, it's actually, uh, it's a Masonic term as well. I don't mm. really know too much about masonry, but, uh, I have some in my family tree, some masons and, uh, talking about the dark arts here. Uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know, you know, who knows, <laughs> but, uh, I guess the idea of the chamber of reflection in, in, uh, you know, the Masonic religion or whatever you want to call it is, it's, I, th- I think part of the initiation process of becoming uh, a Mason and, and you go in and there's some things you do in there. You spend a certain amount of time in there. I think there's some like strange objects in there, symbols of, you know, there's things in there Mm. and you spend some time in there and you go in and and you reflect on what you've done in your life up to that point. You kind of come to terms with everything. And then you leave this place as uh, like a brand new man or person, you know, it's like a clean slate kind of, which I've found kind of interesting because, you know, I related it a little bit to how I make records, especially back in those days where it was like, okay, lock myself in this, especially the place I recorded this record at had no windows. It was very much like a, like a weird little cell 
small room. Yeah, kind of. It felt like uh, like I was doing that to myself, making the record or something. So it was, yeah, that's kind of I think why I uh, was interested by that uh, terminology. But in you know, in other terms, a chamber of reflection is literally a chamber or a room or space where you shoot sound into, and then you mic it up if it's bouncy in there. You get a nice uh, extra layer to put on top of your whatever you want to send in there vocals drums piano doesn't matter i don't know i think it's kind of it's kind of cute i have that song and it meant one thing for me at one point and now i literally have a chamber of reflection under my home pretty good (laughs) so um i want to get into what your echo chamber does and how you built it but first i think it'd be helpful to get some basics on the physics of sound from russ um Sound basically is, it's frequency and wavelength, which may or may not mean something to you, but frequency is how often something happens. And that's broken down into cycles per second. It's typically how many times something happens in a second. So a wave, we know what a wave is. A wave looks like a wave from the ocean. When it rolls in, there's a peak and then there's a valley and then there's a neutral part in the middle. And basically one cycle is going from neutral all the way up to a peak and then all the way to a valley and then back to neutral to rest. And sound is basically a bunch of peaks and valleys, rarefication and pressurization of molecules in the number of cycles that occur for frequency. For instance, uh, mid-range frequency is something that we consider 1K is about 1 kilohertz or a thousand cycles per second. The lower number of cycles, meaning the lower frequencies or a lower pitch sound, higher than that, more cycles per second is things that occur up in the upper range. Our speech range is primarily between about 125 hertz and up to about 8K. And all our vowels and labials and those things all occur up to uh, probably below 2K. And from 2K up to 8K and, and up in there, that's where our consonants and fricatives and T's talking are <laughs> and S's sibilating. You know, our hearing range goes from the traditional is 20 to 20K. As you get older, that range starts getting reduced. You start losing the top end. Fortunately, our neurology is so closely tied to our hearing mechanisms that when it starts getting reduced, we make up for it in our mind. We know what we expect to hear if we're used to something, and our neurology can overcome it to a certain degree. Let's see, what else can I tell you about? Uh, piano is like the, the perfect instrument. It's percussion and melody and musical and frequency related. Its range runs from a little above 30 hertz up to 4,500 hertz, something like that. But there's all this harmonic content in it that comes off the string. So you have the fundamental, but then there's all the harmonic content that goes on. And that adds richness and tone and helps us perceive pitch. We don't just hear pure tone. We hear the tone plus are the harmonics. And uh, some of those harmonics reinforce. Some of them actually detract or or destroy some of the the sound. Uh, Some are very pleasant harmonics. Some are not. And then so when harmonics happen, I mean... On a guitar string, for example, the most substantial harmonic is at the midpoint between the top and the bottom of the string, right? Yep. That's the first harmonic. So it's all very mathematical. It is. 
there's a wonderful book called Godel Escher Bach. And Godel was a mathematician. Everybody knows who Bach was. And Escher is the wonderful artist who developed these mathematically very intriguing, unique fractal systems and, and other drawings and relationships to things. He was really amazing in that. Tessellated forms. I believe he developed tessellated forms and other things. At any rate, the book is interesting because it relates music to art to mathematics. And uh, they're all very closely related. The same things apply. There's harmony, there's dissonance, there's texture, of course, there's frequency, there's rhythm. All those things are in architecture, they're in music, they're in math, they're in art. So um, it's a real interesting relationship. They're not that unusual. Mac, as you've uncovered more knowledge about the science of making music and sound, has it affected your process in, in any way for better or worse? Yeah, I mean, I I get more interested in the nitty gritty of the recording side of things. I'm sure a lot of my fans would be like, just go back to the eight track and make like really crazy sounding, like weird, crappy, like, you know, and, you know, fair enough. I like the way those records sound. But now it's, you know, I, I get really obsessed now with microphones and, you know, what the preamplifier is. Like back in the day, I didn't care. It was like, oh, it has a fancy power switch. Like, thank God, you know. But uh, I, th- I I try to keep this in mind a lot of the time where, you know, with recording, there's no right or wrong way. Things turn out good, things turn out bad, but it's not like right or wrong. Like maybe, you know, if you've like completely erased something with phase cancellation, like, okay, maybe that's not very right, you know, but even today, because there's so much information that's available on the internet, I go online and I'm like, well, how do you mic this up? How do you do this? And you read all these things and you kind of, you keep all of these things. It's like, oh, well, I should do this. There's all these guidelines set up. And then I feel like it's almost a footnote nowadays where at the end of some forum post or something, the pro audio guy will be like, but remember, there's no real rules, but it's like, but you just laid out all these rules and like, now I'm going to, you know, keep those in mind and it is going to influence it's that, that's one thing I think about, you know, from the time frame when I uh, did Chamber of Reflection or any of those other recordings is I really had no scope of that. It was like, well, this thing makes a delay sound. That's great. This is a mixing board so I can put sounds together. Okay, fine. This is a microphone. I'll just use it. You know, the real like uh, true experimentation or like true just like unknowingness or something. It's, you know, it's hard to, it's <laughs> hard to come by now. I don't know. Yeah, right. Would you? Th- is it fair to say there's a certain amount of alchemy involved with music? Yeah, I think so. If you go right down to the bare bones of like how a microphone works, even it's like oh, like magnets, like yeah, know, electrical signal, especially on tape. It's like tape to me still is like okay. So there's this piece of plastic with all this dust on it that mm-hmm. somehow is taking this electrical signal and you're able to reproduce like that is insane to me you know it's it's even more i mean the computer side of recording things where it's like pretty much ones and zeros so many of them that it can make this you know representation of like a a sound form in the air or whatever like that's crazy too but for some reason i understand how that works a little bit better than this like elemental like oh yeah well you know it's like magnetic tape dust it's like what yeah like pixie dust like what are you talking about or uh speakers Speakers too. You're pretty much just vibrating a piece of cardboard. I mean, now I don't really know what speaker cones are made out of, but yeah, like it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. Yeah. So Russ, while we're here, what is happening when a sound is coming out of a speaker? It's pushing air, but how's it doing it? 
Well, it's a piston. There's a coil of wire in there. Anybody who, I guess for me, I guess it was third grade or fourth grade, where we'd have a coil of wire and we'd we create an electromagnet. It would, you know, magnetize a nail. Or if you took the nail and you ran that through this coil of wire and you had the ends of the coil of wire connected up to a meter that measured current, you'd notice that current occurred because of that. So basically a solenoid or a speaker or any of those things are basically a coil of wire that is alternating current is passed into it. And when the current flows in one way, Mm -hmm. when it passes through there, it forces the cone out into the room during a positive cycle in the wavelength. And then when a negative electrical signal passes through, it pulls in. So the speaker moves in and out at the frequency that you're trying to reproduce. So if you're putting a 100 hertz signal out, you know, very low, Mm -hmm. a bass signal, then that speaker cone moves in and out 100 times a second. So it moves out and comes back into rest and then back to zero 100 times every second. Now think about reproducing something like, say, the the sheen and the top end of cymbals Mm. or sibilance, things that are really high. That has to move it you know, 16,000 times a second. So there's all kinds of art and Mm. math and science and a lot of alchemy that goes into making a speaker not only function, but function efficiently. So it'll play loud enough to reproduce the levels we need. We'll do it over low signals all the way to high signals and do it over a broad bandwidth. And then also, so it has a polar Mm -hmm. pattern. So it reproduces sound into the room in a way where it covers everything or covers what you want. Maybe it's focused. You want to focus Mm -hmm. it more at a certain place in the room or or at certain people and keep it off of the walls, for instance. Or maybe you want it to cover everything, to be almost omnidirectional. So anyway, I don't know if that answered. No, that definitely answers my question. And what are some of the ways that you can make a loud club sound good? Uh, turn the volume down. <laughs> but when that's not an option. Yeah, it's it's really a problem. You're chasing your tail to a bit, trying to increase the sound, keep the distortion down, improve the intelligibility, and then you're fighting in a noisy environment. It's self-defeating in a way, trying to compete with a noise level with a volume control. So usually the first thing that, that we look at is you try and set an appropriate background noise level in the space. That means using another sort of, uh, I guess, subset of, of acoustics uh, is noise control, HVAC noise control in this case. So you try and make sure that the background noise level is low enough so that you're preserving the quality of sound that's there. If you're trying to compete with a noisy crowd, well, then they're not there to hear your music. You, you're not, you know, you're going to force it on them. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just, this is now we're getting into philosophical uh, discussion here. Um, I mean, you know, if the purpose is for people to hear and they're coming to hear, I mean, I've been a number of concerts I've been to, you could hear a pin drop in there where you're really leaning in and listening to the music and the nuance of it, the harmonic structure, and if there are words, what those words mean to you and what those harmonies and melodies mean to you. Maybe they're familiar, maybe they're brand new to you, but it, it all, there's this wonderful emotional interaction that happens. 
And if you're just in the middle of a loud club, well, I mean, you're in the middle of a loud club and you turn it up wherever you want and, and that's it. But, you know, if people are talking and distracting, you know, you keep turning it up and it just gets loud and now people aren't hearing linearly. Uh, it starts compressing the the overall dynamic range of the of the program, so the lows and the highs, that emotional content, those those peaks, those transits, those things are all getting kind of compressed just to make it loud. Yeah. Well, it's crazy, you know, the screaming and the hooting and the hollering, and then having to get the bigger and the bigger PA, and then all of a sudden you're in this just. Uh, at least my engineers that travel with me are just kind of like there too like because i don't i don't want to be playing super screaming loud i don't make super screaming loud music they're just kind of like we have to it has to, we have to get on top of them it has to be louder and it's just like you know it's a good problem to have though well it is a good problem to have but i don't know live sound it's crazy it <laughs> it's is crazy. but you think about concert sound outside all the issues that you have with that with noise control and the rest and one of the phenomena that I find really fascinating is when you're out there listening to something, you're out on the lawn and all of a sudden the wind blows a little bit and it sounds like the sound is just blown away. It just all of a sudden goes dark and then all of a sudden it'll come back when the wind stops. It turns out it's not the wind. I mean, it is the wind, but it's not sound being blown away by the wind. Sound travels at 1130 feet per second and a little 10 or 15 mile an hour wind is not going to do much of anything to it. What's happening is the wind is moving a big ball of thermal energy or thermal difference, in essence, a weather front between the speaker and the listener, you out in the lawn. So if it blows a big blob of cold air in there, when sound hits that, it bends it down into the ground. If it's a hot day or there's hot thermals and it blows hot air across it, it actually bends the sound up and passes you. Russ, you mentioned a term a minute ago some people might not know. You were saying how turning up the sound too loud takes away detail in the music and compresses the transients. What is a transient? Uh, well, let's say uh, a gunshot or a drum hit or plucking a guitar string, that initial ping, that pop that comes out of there, that's a transient. Interestingly enough, high transients uh, can really affect hearing and cause hearing damage. There was a study done many, many years ago over in uh, the UK where they studied a group of performers, rock performers, and half of them had hearing damage and half of them were just fine. They were playing the same band night after night, week after week, year after year. And it turns out the ones that had hearing damage there was a correlation between them drinking and typically marijuana, but not not hallucinogens or that, but drugs that sort of retarded your physical response. The smallest muscle in the body is called the stapedius muscle. It's a muscle in the inner ear, and it acts like a little limiter. So whenever it senses a really loud transient, it triggers and shuts down to protect the inner ear from loud noises. Uh, you've heard this, if you've ever been, you know, you've been on the front line and you got the drummer behind you whacking on the snare drum. And sometimes your ear will go into spasm where it goes, you can just feel it like shutting down and almost spasming. Well, that's the stapedius muscle. Well, apparently drinking heavily reduces the speed with which it can operate. It lets transients by, therefore hearing damage. 
Wow, that's crazy. So, especially to think that usually when I'm playing a show, alcohol is part of the equation. Yeah, and that's probably the loudest place that I'm, you know, usually in. Yeah. Well, no shows right now, but uh, you know, for the most, wow, that's that's insane, huh? Well, you heard it here, folks. Got to ease up on the hooch, <laughs> <laughs> or just control your levels. <laughs> well, we're about at the midpoint of the show, and Mac, I'm dying to hear the sound of the chamber of reflection, as it were, that you built in your basement. Could we get a taste of what it sounds like? Sure, sure. Let's see. There may be some strange sounds as well. The thing about the chamber is that uh, it's not, I mean, it's a room down there, but it's not exactly perfectly isolated. So a lot of times when I'm recording, I'll hear a truck going by or birds chirping or a helicopter or something. So if any of those sounds come in, don't be alarmed. It's just, you know, but let's try a little bit. This is just, I'm just running straight into it. It's just, it, let's just bring that bus end up. Oh, Oh, oh yeah. Ooh, that's the sound of my basement. That's nice. <laughs> oh, my mic gain is pretty high. It's got a pretty good tail, you know? Oh! Yeah. Man. Russ, could you tell us a bit about what we're hearing or what reverberation is? Well, reverb chambers are used for all different kinds of things in, in acoustical measurements, but they're also made, you know, like the great example here, he made one himself where he's placing dimension and space behind his voice and other instruments. And um, typically, reverberation time is what people refer to, and it's usually in a metric of RT60, where uh, it's the time it takes sound to decay 60 dB, and it's usually measured in the 500 hertz band. And there are several things that affect reverb time, the volume, the absorption coefficients of the wall, the shape to a degree, but mostly that volume is the big, is the big dictator there. And to get longer reverb times, you need to, the walls need to be very, very smooth and reflective and hard. And it's best if the room is, is shaped optimally so that you're avoiding certain standing waves, which are, occur in any time a room is bounded, but build up when room dimensions hit on multiples of one another. But you're looking at that mean-free path that the the path uh, for sound to make it all the way back around a room to the microphone, that uh, that distance affects the the reverb time, but the volume is most is mostly of it. it. As you start making the room smaller, it starts developing certain characteristics that you can hear. Mac, I'd love to hear any details you'd care to share about how you built your chamber. We built a number of them, and they're a lot of fun to do, and it's always an experiment because. You just really never know till it turns out. I'd love to hear about what speaker you used, what microphone you used, the placement, how you finished the walls, the approximate size of it. Love to, to hear about that. Yeah. Oh, let me, I'll take it off while I'm talking. So essentially, uh, the concept I guess we should talk about for this kind of chamber reverb that I've set up here is that you pretty much put a speaker in a room and then you put a microphone in the room as well. And you, you play something through the speaker and the microphone picks up 
the sound being manipulated within that space, I, I guess. So, so I did a little bit of that a couple records ago in my living room and stuff, but it wasn't, you know, there was furniture around. It was sometimes I get a good result, sometimes not so much. And then maybe six months ago, I was like, oh, but I have that storage room under the house. Hmm. So for a little while, yeah, I got everything out of there and it was, it was an unfinished, like there was a concrete floor and, you know, kind of a spackled, almost stucco walls and a pillar. And it was, wasn't super ideal, but even with that situation, I put, I put like a, you know, pretty cheap PA speaker, like big, I put that in there and then a couple little Neumann KM 184 small diaphragm condenser mics in there and just pointed them wherever ran some cables up and even that even though it wasn't you know it was just a okay here's a room let's try it even that having it come back through the speakers i was like oh and eventually i was like i want this to be a little bit because that, that was the thing when i had it in there and nothing was you know it was just the room the way that the room had been before i put anything in there the the time was relatively short it was cool because it gave it a sense of like 3d you know there was it was a space all of a sudden but I called my contractors and I was kind of like, it, it, it's not, I, I didn't really do any extreme research or, or anything. I just called my guys and, and was like, coat the walls in concrete, like just go for it. And they were like, okay, like, what are you doing down here? And I was like, don't worry about it. Just do it. And they were like, okay, fine. And even doing that, yeah, the reverb is, is, is maybe three or four seconds longer just because the surfaces now are, are reflective. And I think that, you know, Russ, if you if you came here and looked at it, it's it's not ideal. Like I know there's a lot of different things you want. Like you know the even for treating like studios or anything that the the you know having the walls parallel, even things like that. You know, there's things that make problems. But I've so far it's been pretty good. The room isn't super huge either. That that was what I took away from the capital chambers. I started researching them, and I was like, oh, these rooms are they're like eight feet long. Like it's they're not super humongous yeah the capital chambers are they're famous uh they're sort of the touchstone that everybody uses for a, a well-built chamber i don't know how much science went into it originally but you know um if you can't be smart it's always good to be lucky <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh you know every room is different so who's to say what a good chamber is we have these metrics where we can measure them but if it sounds good, then it is good. And that's really what matters. That's the the ultimate ultimate thing. You know, an interesting thing about reverberation time, one of the things that affects it is the humidity. It actually affects the speed of sound and it affects the propagation of sound and the frequency response of sound. So drier air uh, reduces sound quicker. You get more absorption of sound with drier air. So if you were to go in there and get a little spray spritz bottle and spray distilled water in there because you don't want to spritz your microphone and speaker with stuff that has calcium in it. <laughs> Distill water and spritz it around in there and then listen to the verb time. I think you'll see that it got a sweeter sound and there's a sweeter sound, particularly in the top end. And you'll get maybe a little bit more decay, but significant. Yeah, I've heard that, that humidity, like I, I, there was that one story, I think maybe at the Capitol Chambers even where because I think their chambers are underneath the parking lot or something like they built them and they flooded one year, I think. And the humidity changed the, the sound of them all. Too. That's the funniest thing to me. All these like legendary old chambers 
it's like you know oh somebody changed the paint one year and they're like oh my god like what happened to our sound we got to change the paint back like what's going on you know it's <laughs> that's some well, real science stuff it's well, like, yeah no yeah. i mean but if you think about it, like so you're from are you from toronto I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, uh, west okay. side of Canada. But you're familiar with the sound of a cold winter oh, night. Oh, yeah. Toronto ain't got nothing on us, I'll tell you. Yeah. Just the sound of, you know, like walking in New York City on a winter night, the sound of those shoes on the sidewalk in January is something completely different from July. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really wild. And there's there's a quietness that I love about the winter. It's, it's it's interesting in places like that too because you really do feel a difference in New York because it gets like so thick and hot in the summer mm-hmm. and then I mean it's still pretty like humid in the winter but it, yeah everything just slows right down it gets freezing cold but yeah totally I don't know it's wild it's wild you know it just comes back to that magic thing where it's like oh yeah sound is like air rippling or something and like you know depending on getting pressed against my ear. Yeah, exactly. You know, and like what temperature is your ear? What temperature is the air? Like, you know, it's really crazy. It's crazy. I I know. It's it's really bananas. Russ, what are some other crazy things about sound that you could tell us? Well, um, we have small hairs on our face and uh, they can actually pick up frequencies that are much, much higher, significantly higher than uh, our range of hearing through our ears. Perceiving sound is a multidimensional experience. Uh, There's the tactile feel of vibration through the body. There's the the impact of sound on your body, on resonating different parts of the body cavities. They all are slightly different and respond differently. And then, of course, there's our ears. And then uh, also this tactile uh, experience that we get from extreme high frequencies on the face. And they're experimented with... Uh, uh, communication devices for that, uh, for military and others, but that's all, it's all pretty exotic stuff. And yeah. a practical level, it really isn't. Now, if I'm making a product and make claim that my speaker cable will, you know, make the hairs on your face stand up and you'll hear to 60K, well, <laughs> prove yeah, me sure. wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's, uh, it doesn't have as much practical aspect for the normal normal hearing things but that's some that's some that's that's pretty sci-fi yeah yeah it's it's real interesting stuff there's there's i mean there's just so much that we continue to learn and what we think now and again what i'm repeating or what i'm is what i have understood what i've read what i have uncovered and discovered myself but i'm always ready to learn something new it's a matter of synthesizing all these different um pieces of information together to put together uh, to translate that into bricks and mortar, into spaces yeah. and rooms. There, there are three sort of main aspects. There's a physiological aspect to hearing, and then there's a perceptual aspect, and then there's the acoustical aspects of it. And the physiological part is like a head shape, for instance. There's a thing called ILD, or interoral or interlevel difference. And then there's an ITD, interoral time difference. Because our ears hear level, if we hear a different, and they're spaced mm-hmm. apart with most people <laughs> uh, on either sides of our head, if you hear a level difference in one side than the other, then you perceive the sound from being over there. But 
there's also an interall time difference. That means if sound is on one side, it's a shorter difference in time to get in one ear than it is to get all the way around the head to the other ear. So there's an interall time difference. We're able to tell those differences. Then there are head-related transforms, or HRTFs, <laughs> they're referred to. And that, uh, if you can imagine, if you're, you have a sound on one side of you and it's coming into one ear, you're getting full frequency response. But if you come around to the other ear, the head is blocking it. So all of a sudden the sound mm -hmm. is muffled. <laughs> you, you also have these transforms that are from that. And then we have an interesting thing with our pinna. That's the fleshy part of the ear and the ear canal, the way they're tied together. They're unique in every person. They're like fingerprints. And there is that's part of facial recognition and some of the other things they're working on are actual shape of pinna and ear. Mm. But there are these things called pinna transforms. Dr. Putty Rogers is the one who uh, really pioneered all this work. And that was back in the days of uh, – Dick Heiser, when he came up with uh, time delay spectrometry and released that time-gated measurement responses that allowed us to measure not just frequency and level, but also time when these signals were happening. And we found that when the direct sound is combined with the reflected energy, it convolves the direct sound. You get notching. You get this, what appears to be on a measurement, on a frequency scale, comb filtering. And the pinna transform, depending on where the angle of sound is coming into the ear canal, it changes where that notch occurs and series of notches. So that notch is where that frequency kind of drops out. Yes, exactly. It, it, it's destructive interference. You get constructive where it adds and destructive where it notches and eliminates it. Well, that notch changes frequency depending on the angle of incidence into the ear canal. Our brain is able to decode that and turn that into elevation and azimuth signals. What's an azimuth signal? Across the median plane, uh, in front of you, all the way around to the side. Right. Now, there's <laughs> there's also this wonderful thing called the, the cone of confusion, <laughs> where it, it's directly out opposite directly at a right angle out from your ear, and there's this cone area there where it's hard to tell whether something's in front of you or behind you when it's there to resolve it because the time cues are almost identical. Mm. Okay, so I said there are three things. There's the physiological aspects, then there's the perceptual aspects. That comes into how we perceive sound, like we perceive loudness, uh, pitch, at what frequency pitch is frequency, from low frequencies to high frequencies. Uh, perceptual act, uh, aspect would be localization. Is it coming from the left or the right or above? And then envelopment, or is this sound wrapping around me? Is it coming over me, under me? What? How am I, you know, those are per the perceptual aspects of it. And those are all affected by a variety of different influences. Uh, so is perhaps one of the reasons why listening to music with reverb is so pleasant is because it gives all these senses a a run for their money? It does. You know, you hear reverb and reverberation always sort of indicates, again, reverb is decay over time. Right. So when you have a transient in a room or an acoustical event, uh, you have the initial transient and then you have the decay and sound bounces around the room and returns back to you, the listener, and 
you have an impression of how big the room is, the size of it, the shape, what the finishes are, your placement in the room, are you standing right next to a wall? You're out in the middle of the room. And this reverberation simulates that sound when you're out in a cathedral or in a church or in a large volume space. It, it simulates that. But the reverb is only coming in a stereo recording from the front, right? from two areas. So its ability to wrap around you and envelop you is is limited. But again, our brain is so wonderful. It starts interpolating and leaving you with the, if you're just squinting one eye down and listening hard, well, then you're going to go, oh, it's only coming from up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're into the music and you've uh, given yourself over to the experience, your brain will start filling in and creating that in, envelopment. Oh, so do you know anything about how, uh, when we were talking about the microscopic hairs on our face being able to detect higher frequencies, are there other parts of the body that correlate with certain other resonant frequencies? Absolutely. Um, the Well, the resonant frequency of, a, of the chest cavity is somewhere around 60 to 70 hertz. And if you'll notice most consumer speakers, there's a big bump there. So, man, I really feel this in my chest, man. It's really thumping, man. Great bass. Um, the stomach is around 4 to 8 hertz. Um, shoulders about the same lungs are kind of in that lower five hertz range. Hands and arms are up around 20, uh, maybe 20 to 70 Hertz. And so that, that Um, just, that just means that structurally they, they, they vibrate harmonically where they respond with, with that frequency. Yep. I mean, there's some frequencies yeah. that just hurt you. You know, it's like, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not the kind of guy yeah. that's like, there it is, oh, yeah. 5K. Like, I don't, I don't know, but it's like, <laughs> you know, when the sub is like so insane at some concert that you kind of feel like you're going to throw yeah. up or like, you know, poop your uh-huh. pants or something like that's crazy. You know, yeah. Isn't there something called yeah. the brown sound? Yeah, brown note. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, oh, no. Actually, that was um, Dr. Boner out of Austin who was hired no, by NASA not. to. Uh, There's no one named Dr. Boner. Oh, yes. He was one of the. No, truly. He was one of the. And actually, there are two other acousticians named Boner uh, uh, Richard and. Uh, uh, yeah, Dick Boner. <laughs> yeah. No way. Dr. Boner was famous. He's the one who invented equalization. Okay, he's the first one to tune uh, PA systems with uh, resonant coils. He's amazing. You can look in the literature on him. He is a a genius. So anyway, they're afraid that from this, all the vibration and sound, incredible sound pressure levels that are there in in a rocket launch trying to escape gravity, that uh, our astronauts would would void themselves. Oh, man. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they s- submitted people to almost 160 dB of sound from fractions of a cycle all the way up to about 50 hertz. And it did cause all kinds of problems. They had vision problems, made them nauseous. They had cognitive problems, you know, working tasks. Uh, motor skills were off and other effects and stuff. But uh, but there was no profound pooping produced. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, on that note, so to speak, it's about time for us three to wrap up. Mac, thanks for taking us into your basement. And yeah, no problem. Russ, thanks for giving us a good education on the physics of sound. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mac. 
Great to be here. Okay, take care, guys. Yeah, God bless you. Be sure to keep an ear out for Mac's next release when he puts out two sets of demo records from the Here Comes the Cowboy album. And you can see some of Russ's design work at his company's website, rbdg.com. Today's show featured original music by Panoram and was co-produced with The Talk House. Special thanks to Chris Taylor, Michelle Cable, and Josh Lewis at Urban Recording Company. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to Sing for Science and check out our other episodes. 